Uh, we have been uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's Gospel. Um, this is like the good stuff. This is like at the heart of what Jesus seems to be trying to say to us. It's at the heart of the invitation that he seems to be giving to us. By the way, we're going to do baptisms on Easter. And if you're interested in what that means for us, every week that we work through the Sermon on the Mount, we are working out together what the invitation is, like what the good news is that Jesus is inviting us into with something like baptism. And so today we're going to go a little bit further uh, in the text. Uh, let's take a look at what happens in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This will be familiar for some of you. When Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So today we're going to talk a little bit about prayer because Jesus in the heart of the sermon talks to us about prayer. But before we work through what he says about it, I'm just curious, anybody want to like offer like one word of like how you feel when you hear the word prayer? We want like the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Uh, yeah. Humble? Yeah, humble. Thanks. What else? Comfort. Comfort. Vulnerable. Conversation. Conversation. Anybody else? Other words I'm used to hearing? Boring. Uh, <laughs> frustrating. Uh, failure. Um, beautiful. Uh, quiet. Uh, I, I feel like when I get into conversation with people about prayer, I, I tend to get the whole gamut from people who like have a natural gravitation toward it to others of us who find that it's like the least natural thing for us to do. And maybe not only do you find that you don't do it a lot, but you're not sure why you would do it, or um, maybe you feel like you've been shamed for the fact that it's not a big part of your life, or you've been in settings that like really imposed upon you some expectation that to be a good person or to be a good Christian is to pray a lot. Or maybe you were like in a space that had like quiet time or like devotions or like time with God kind of like baked into the expectation of like how you're supposed to show up in the world. Anybody? Yeah, all of that, right? Um, I think one of the problems with prayer and one of the reasons that we get really stuck on it is it gets sort of preached at and like talked about in a couple of ways that I don't think are super helpful. Uh, one of those images as like prayer as a lever that you pull to make things happen, right? This is like when we talk about like prayer works, you know, and, and prayer does things and changes things. And here's the trick. There's a lot of scriptures that seem to suggest that, but I don't always know what to do with that. Just this week, I've been emailing with a family in our church whose adult son was discovered to have a, a large uh, tumor in his brain. And the way they found it was uh, when seizures struck that uh, threatened his life. And then we removed the tumor, and um, he's lost function in like half of his body. And it, they don't know why, actually, because it was a non-cancerous tumor, and they thought like they'd be moving on from this challenge. And um, I have enough friends who are parents to know that there seems to be maybe nothing worse than watching your kid go through something. And we've been emailing back and forth, and like one of the big questions that we've been wrestling with together is when Jesus says things like, you have little faith, and like, scriptures that seem to suggest that prayer is meant to like do things if you trust enough and if you believe enough. And I'll just be honest with you the way that I've been trying to be honest with him. What I've basically said so far is like, I don't know what to do with those texts right now. But my own life experience have taught me that like one thing prayer is not consistently reliable for is as a lever to like push things around in God or the world. 
Have you found that? Uh, I'm not saying that nothing ever changes when we pray. I'm just saying I don't know how to teach prayer as some, like, reliable lever. Like, we got the secret. And if you just pray the right way, you can make the things happen that you want to have happen in the world. I just haven't seen it work that way. Uh, I think, like, another way that prayer gets sort of worked out in church spaces and, and religious settings is just kind of like prayer is, like a, is a duty that you perform. Like, to be, like, a good person, that's kind of alluding to that earlier, Right? That you just like, you check this off the list so that you show up with God or in the world the way that a good person does or a person who's approved by God or whatever. And I I just don't think these are helpful images for prayer, especially when I think about what I see actually going on uh, in the scriptures. Um, Now, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount where we have um, the Lord's Prayer, that's not the only place in the Gospels where Jesus offers this prayer. There's a a place in, in Luke's Gospel, I believe it is, where the disciples come to Jesus and they just say, hey, will you teach us how to pray? And it seems that like they had seen prayer doing something in Jesus' life. Uh, there's an interesting place in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, where Jesus, in like one paragraph, goes through like one of the worst things you can imagine and one of the best things that you can imagine. It's interesting. So in Matthew 14, Jesus' cousin, his friend, John the Baptist, has been beheaded by Herod at a dinner party, which is disgusting and violent and terrifying, right? And it seems that the reason that John was beheaded is like John was part of the same movement that Jesus was sort of leading out in the world. So it's not just that Jesus has lost his friend to a disgusting kind of violent act at a dinner party to entertain Herod's guests, but it's also the fact that like John and Jesus are kind of part of the same thing in the world. So if you're Jesus and you find out that John has been beheaded, it might be safe to assume that that same kind of violence is coming for you. And when you read the text, Jesus' response to this awful news isn't to go, like, uh, distract himself from it. It isn't to go, like, drink it away or, like, numb himself out, which, like, that can be a very human response to pain or violence, right? His actual response to this terrible news is that he goes away to be alone by himself and pray. So I wonder if they, like, saw that pattern in his life, that this was the way that he worked through the most painful things that he faced. And then, while he's away trying to hide and pray, this crowd of people finds out where he is, and they come to him, and instead of like sending them away or being frustrated with them, he feeds like thousands of people in this big miraculous event, which you would think is like a highlight in his ministry, right? This is like ride the wave. And I don't know about you, but like when things are going really well, when you're on top of the world and the crowds are really happy with you, my inclination might be to keep it going. Right? Like give them something more, like put on another show for them, like ride the wave, keep the momentum. But no, again. He withdraws from all of that, and he goes and finds a quiet place to pray. It's like right there in one paragraph, you get like incredible success, which was preceded by incredible loss. And in both of those experiences, his, his response, it seems kind of natural to him, is to get away and pray. It's like all the clarity that you see in Jesus' life. Like you ever read the Gospels and just like, man, this, this guy knew what he was doing. He knew what he was here for. He knew where he was going. It seems all that clarity, it seems like all that generosity with which he lived, that he kept finding ways to give himself away. It seems that all the bravery that he brought into the world, it seems that all the creativity that he brought into the world, it seems that there's some kind of connection between all those things that we love and admire about Jesus and this pattern of prayer that shows up in his life. And that makes sense to me because of what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the interesting thing about the Lord's Prayer that you've probably heard a lot of times in your life. It's located in the exact center of the sermon. And here's one thing we know about Matthew and the way that Matthew wrote Matthew's gospel. Matthew's really thoughtful about what he places where in the story that he tells. 
You ever see like a, a movie made by a great filmmaker, and have you noticed that great filmmakers will tell their story with more than just the lines spoken by the characters? Right, like a great filmmaker, they'll, they'll do things visually, right? They'll juxtapose one image with another image, right? They'll let the camera kind of linger on something for a minute. And if you're paying really close attention, you know that a great filmmaker uses things beyond the words spoken by the characters to tell the story, right? Well, same goes with a gospel writer like Matthew. It's not just the actual like, words on the page. It's also the way that Matthew kind of used his ability as an editor, as a compiler, to kind of take all these different teachings and stories and put them side by side. And one thing we know about Jewish writers like Matthew is when they really want to drive home the heart of something, they put it at the very center of a literary unit. So like, hang with this idea with me for a moment now. The Sermon on the Mount, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, like, God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. God wants to heal and create and do beautiful things through you. He starts that sermon by saying, like, I don't care who you are, what you've done, or what's happened to you. I don't care if you have a poverty within you. I don't care if you've lost something great. God wants to give God's life to you. God wants to live God's life through you. Like, to be human, to be alive, to be, like, what it means for us to be here is nothing less than for God to give God's life to you and live God's life through you and do the kinds of things in the world that God likes to do. So he makes that big promise, and then like leading up to the Lord's Prayer, and after the Lord's Prayer, he's, he's out, got all these like pictures and images and examples of like, what it looks like when God lives God's life through us, right? And then when we get to the center of the picture of God's life through us, where does Jesus turn? Prayer. Prayer. And, like, I'm not here to, like, you know, guilt any of us for not praying, because if I were, I would be a guilty party up here. <laughs> I'm not here to, like, put pressure on you, but I'm just observing that, like, at the center of this beautiful picture of a life that creates justice in the world, of a life that is generous in the world, of a life that spreads healing in the world, at the center of that life, Jesus offers this picture of prayer. He seems to be saying, like, this is, like, how, how you actually, like, tune your life into it. And by the way, like I talked earlier about prayer as a lever that you pull or a duty that you perform. I don't like those images. I think they're bad images. I wanted to offer you a new image today of how you might think of prayer before we like kind of work through those lines of the Lord's Prayer and just observe how it is that Jesus is trying to ask us to pray. Here's the image. Anybody ever been to an orchestra concert? Anybody? Yeah, you've been to an orchestra concert, even if it was your, your kids, and you might, it might have barely qualified as a concert. I don't know what you might have called it. Noises from the stage, right? But if you've ever been to an orchestra concert, you know that there's this strange thing that happens. You, you walk into this, like, very polished experience. Everybody's wearing tuxedos on the stage. Maybe you're at the Morris downtown. It's a really beautiful, polished environment. But the first thing that happens at an orchestra concert isn't very polished. It's the tuning. You know what I'm talking about here? Let me play you a little, little reminder if you've ever heard this. Right? So perhaps the oboe will come out and they'll just play a note. And then all the other instrumentalists, they pick up their instruments and they just kind of like listen for a little bit and then they play along, right? And it's interesting. So they'll kind of do that once and everything will kind of die down a little bit. And then like you'll hear it again and they'll all just kind of play out for a little bit. They'll listen. They'll get their instruments tuned up. And I don't know about you, but the first time I heard that, I was like, shouldn't they have tuned ahead of time? <laughs> but of course, like these are real instruments and they get cold and warm and they fall out of tune and need to be pulled back into tune. And so you go to a concert, and the first thing that happens before all this gorgeous music is made, before all this incredible beauty is put on display for us, before you get your heart like lifted up 
by the, by the creativity and the power of what's about to happen by these incredible artists, the first thing that happens is they tune. And the tune is to do some, to like two very, very simple things. First of all, they listen. Uh, great symphonies are, are marked not first by like how well they play, but how well they listen to one another. I mean, that's, that's how like a great orchestra plays together. They breathe together, they listen to one another, they tune into one another. So they listen and then they join. Right, they, just, they listen and then they join. And so the oboe sets the, the A440, that's the frequency that that note comes out at, and they listen for a moment. And of course, if they just listen, well, that's not gonna help them tune. They actually need to kind of hear their own voice in contrast to that thing that they're hearing, and they kind of like bring their own instrument's voice into tune with what they've just heard, right? That's the best image I've been able to come up for in a while now for prayer, that it's something like tuning for the orchestra. And the reason I think it especially makes sense is that Jesus seems to believe that like, God is always out here in the world with us. God is always moving in the world with us. Like, God is present, animating this world in every minute of every day, which is why Jesus can say things like, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is yours. It's for you. It's like he seems to think that there is this sound that's always ringing out, although most of us spend most of our lives not hearing it. But he seems to be saying, but, but if you want, you can tune into it. You can harmonize with it. You can kind of live in the flow of it. I think prayer is the kind of thing that we do when we want to listen and join. And so prayer can begin with a kind of um, just sort of like attempt to become aware that God is here. God is with us. God is present. And then we begin to find our own words in prayer, right? And to do that is to kind of like find the ways that we are already in harmony and the ways that we aren't. And so we listen and we join and we listen and we join. If we do that enough, we, we might find ourselves making something really beautiful out of our lives and like putting some really beautiful things out there in the world, which again is why I think this, this, this teaching on prayer is at the center of three chapters that describe a beautiful kind of life, like the best kind of life worth living. Right there in the middle is this teaching on prayer. So now I just thought um, I would work through these phrases in the prayer. I know some of us in the room have been taught to pray this prayer, perhaps in a kind of like uh, traditional or liturgical form for a very long time. Maybe you've been in churches where you actually prayed the words of the Lord's Prayer on Sunday mornings, perhaps before you came to the Eucharist. Uh, for others of us, we've grown up in traditions that were really like afraid of any kind of like written prayer. There was, a, there was a fear that that would become like legalistic or ritualistic, and so we never did that kind of thing. Some of us have a lot of baggage with the language in this prayer. Others of us, it's kind of new language for us. Uh, I just want to like work through these briefly because what's great about this is Jesus is very direct. It's like you have Jesus telling you how to pray, which is a little bit like, I don't know, having like a master chef tell you how to cook, right? So like let's just kind of observe together a couple of things about how he teaches us to pray. And this will all be also a way of kind of preparing us to come forward to the Eucharist together. So first he says, uh, when you pray, begin with this, our Father in heaven. And already some of us feel warm and fuzzy and joyful, and others of us need to call our therapist because we have baggage with this language. Because <laughs> father language is really, really messy and complicated in the world, right? Uh, briefly, I'll just say this. Um, if you've had a good father experience, man, what a wonderful gift that you've been given, that you've had something that kind of echoes or, or rhymes with the way that Jesus understands God relationship to us. And if you've had a bad father experience or an absent father experience, if that word names a wound rather than a gift in your life, I just want to observe. It's probably the case, the only reason that, that it's possible that you have a wound there 
is that there is something inside that knows what that was meant to be. I think almost all of us have some sense, at least, of like what we hope a parent would be, even if they weren't. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks often about desire and says that like, when you have those unmet longings inside, it may be the case that they are a sign of some greater reality that you were meant for. And so I don't mean to brush past uh, the pain or trauma that many feel around the word father, but I do think even, even that wound is pointing towards something that Jesus is trying to name about the way it is that, that God, the mystery at the heart of reality, relates to us. Uh, he says, when you pray to our Father in heaven, next line, uh, hallowed be your name. Offer um, a kind of reverence toward that mystery. Uh, I don't know any good teacher of spirituality or healing uh, or recovery or faith who, if they really know what they're talking about, whatever tradition they're coming from, uh, who doesn't teach that at some point there's a kind of like humbling and surrender that's essential for this journey that we are on. That, that we are meant to, to bow before the mystery and not think of ourselves above it or beside it. Not because like God needs you to feel small, but just because it's true that we are creatures and that to pray is to encounter uh, the creator. And it's just sort of fitting, isn't it, that we would um, be in a kind of um, humbling state before that. Not, not a humiliated state, not a hang your head state, not a your trash state, because th- those don't seem to have anything to do with the way that God thinks about us. But just an appropriate kind of honoring posture before that mystery that we are trying to tune into when we pray. He goes on and says that we should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, this is at the heart of what Jesus believes, right? That God has a kingdom, that God has a reign, that there's a kind of ultimate reality that is in God that is good. And no matter how broken things are, no matter how hurting things are, no matter how dark things are around us, there's something deeper and truer and more enduring that he calls the kingdom of God, which is the good and loving reign of God. And Jesus seems to also think that that reign is, like, is growing. He tells lots of stories about the kingdom of God growing. And this might sound counterintuitive in the world we're living in right now. Like it might feel like the good, the beautiful, the true is diminishing, but Jesus doesn't believe that. Jesus actually believes that the good, the true, the beautiful, that all those things that are of God are growing in our midst, even though at times they might look feeble, they might look defeated by all the broken stuff, but he seems to think it's actually happening And so for Jesus, it makes sense that we would, like, tune into that, that kind of growing reality, that we would want to embrace it both in our own lives and uh, on the earth around us. He goes on with a prayer for provision. Give us today our daily bread. And uh, a lot of people have observed how modest this request is, right? Uh, This isn't, you know, give us today the lottery. This isn't um, give us today the things that we'll need for the next 10 years. This isn't the mode that I got in when the pandemic hit, uh, when it was like, oh man, I probably need to like stock up my pantry for weeks on end, right? Give us today our daily bread. Apparently for Jesus, if we are tuning in to that ultimate reality that wants to live through us, that there's something about just being present in the here and now and and just sort of like um, trusting what we need today for today without hoarding what we need for the long future. Uh, There's a disposition of the heart that's open-handed enough to believe that I will have what I need today, and tomorrow I will have what I need tomorrow. Um, 
This has been a hard posture for me to hold during the pandemic. I don't know about you. Um, yeah, the anxiety level has ticked up a little bit for a lot of us, hasn't it? Whether the anxieties are economic or relational or medical or political or whatever. Um, and I'm not suggesting this is easy and I'm not suggesting there's something wrong with you if it's been a hard season for this. But Jesus seems to think that when we tune into that reality, we're going to discover something that makes it possible for us to simply trust today that we will have what we need for today and then tomorrow that we will have what we need for tomorrow. This next line, uh, he talks about grace and forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, by the way, way back in the Hebrew scriptures, debt becomes a metaphor for sin. Uh, there's kind of an evolution in the Hebrew scriptures of kind of how sin gets talked about. But at some point, debt emerges as the metaphor that all these writers think is kind of appropriate for how we think about sin. And this is one of many places in the New Testament where our own experience of forgiveness is connected to the ways that we extend forgiveness. Now, I don't have time to like work all that out with you, especially because I don't have all the answers. Um, there is this promise in Scripture of this sort of unmerited grace that God shows us, this unmerited forgiveness that God shows us, that it's not predicated on how we perform or behave. I mean, that's, that's explicitly there in these teachings. And then also, we, we frequently get these images. Uh, there are parables, there are direct teachings, and there's a prayer here that, that says there's something about the way that we experience forgiveness and the way that we extend forgiveness. And I, I can't help but wonder if that goes back to listening and joining that tuning exercise, right? That if prayer is about tuning, tuning into those harmonies, those frequencies, well, then it makes sense we would listen and we would discover that we have been met with radical forgiveness, that God keeps no record of wrongs, that God's not interested in keeping score on you or me, that we kind of tune into that. And it makes sense that if we were tuning in and then joining, that the, the next natural thing that would happen is that we would live with that same kind of relationship with one another. I don't have all the cosmic math worked out. I don't have the whole equation figured out. Um, but Jesus is quite explicit about the connection between the ways that we experience forgiveness and the ways that we offer it. Uh, he goes on uh, to one of the most uh, challenging sentences in the whole thing. Lead us not into temptation. Has anybody ever wondered, like, why would I need to ask God to not lead me into temptation? Yeah? You should nod, because if that's you, you're smart. This is like, uh, this guy named Tertullian, Tertullian, like in 192 A.D., He's one of the smart people in the church who, like, told us what to think in a good way. I mean that. Like, uh, Tertullian is one of the church fathers, one of the brilliant, bright lights of theology and philosophy. And, and just a couple hundred years after all this is happening, he's there on the page wrestling with, why would you need to ask God to not lead you into temptation? Like, why would God do that? Uh, I don't have an answer for this one either, but a couple of, uh, like, notes or observations. Um, Temptation, we tend to connect really directly with sin, right? Like tempted to do bad things, right? In the original languages here, there's some kind of overlap between temptation towards sin and trial or testing. And I don't know that you want to like seek out trial or testing, but there's a lot of teaching in Scripture about how trials and testing can be the kinds of things that grow us up, right? The kinds of things that sort of mature us in life and faith. Um, it's interesting that Jesus gets driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness for his temptations. And yet here he says, lead us not into it. And the way I read this today in my imperfect interpretation is perhaps that this is the most human and understanding part of the prayer. 
that perhaps Jesus, who, who knows that trials and temptations can grow us up, also knows how hard they can be for us. And maybe the same Jesus who says, it's okay to pray, God, I don't want to be tested because that's when life gets really hard, is the same Jesus who himself in the garden at Gethsemane says, God, I would rather you take this cup from me. Um, there's like a real beautiful humanity in the way that Jesus relates to God in his own life, the Father. And I find like a lot of room for my own humanity there. And there are days when like trials and temptations come and the best, wisest thing I can do is say, all right, well, if it's already here, bring it on, right? But there are other days when the most honest prayer I can pray is, God, I, don't, I would prefer not to face those trials and tests today. And I can't help but wonder if these, it's just Jesus making room for a little bit of that humanity in the prayer. And then he says that we should pray to deliver us from, from the evil one. Uh, Jesus seems to think that there is a bit of a, a contest going on in the cosmos that there are like some real battles being fought, that there's a real uh, conflict being waged uh, in the cosmos. And while Jesus seems quite convinced that God and the good will have the final word, uh, he also seems to know that that hasn't been like fully worked out yet, right? And um, I don't know about you, but like I find that I am perhaps most alive and awake sometimes when I am actively resisting in that conflict rather than passively forgetting that it's happening, right? Like, have you ever discovered that when you try to turn your own life toward better things, you bump into some resistance? Yeah, anybody read a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? If you haven't, put it on your list. Um, he's a writer who talks about the, the fact that like, when you try to turn toward the good in your own life, when you try to grow up, when you try to get better, when you try to wake up, when you try to level up, it's so common that we bump into a kind of resistance that seems almost... Um, surgical in its attack at you, right? And um, there's a lot of days when I just sort of sleep right through that and ignore it, and then there's a few days when I'm awake and aware of it, and those are the days when I find that I'm actually moving toward the good. And Jesus says that people who are tuning in to God in the world, who are listening and joining the beautiful work that God is doing in the world, probably better prepare themselves to pray prayers of resistance and deliverance and help because we, we might find ourselves opposed in that process. That's a lot in a small prayer, isn't it? Um, and so I think there's, there's at least two ways to sort of work with this prayer. One is to pray the actual words of the prayer, and I think that can be a really good and useful thing to do. Uh, this is often a, a morning practice of mine. I, um, I try to spend like 15 minutes in the morning. Uh, I do like some, some yoga stuff. I'm not good at it. Uh, but I'm turning uh, 40 this year, so I got I to figure it out. Uh, body doesn't work the way it used to, and I'll, like, I'll do some morning movement, and often I'll just kind of like work through the, the lines of this prayer exactly as you just heard them. Uh, and other times I'll, um, I'll find myself, rather than using the exact lines of the prayer, uh, thinking more about like what they mean. So rather than just our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, I'll kind of like hang out there for a bit and just kind of think, wow, there's like a loving a loving mystery at the center of all things that thinks of me like a beloved child. I'll just try to hang out in that for a little bit, right? And then I'll think about what it means to live in a kind of reverent posture toward that mystery that thinks of me like a beloved child. And I'll kind of like move through these lines together like that, right? So we thought today, before we come to the Eucharist table, um, what if we did both? What if we prayed the, like the actual words of this prayer and then upon praying the actual words of this prayer, what if we um, use some alternative language 
and some other expressions and some song and some silence to help ourselves move through these lines of prayer as a way of tuning our hearts, right? Of listening and joining uh, the mystery that's right here in our midst, the God that wants to give God's self to us. And so we're gonna do both here uh, on our way to the table. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet for this first part? And we're gonna stand to pray the Lord's Prayer in its traditional form. Uh, one more note, did you notice that I didn't do the thing about yours is the, power, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Yeah, some of you know that part of the prayer. Uh, interesting little, uh, this is for the, the nerds in the room, I suppose. Um, so it used to be that Matthew's gospel included those lines. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen or whatever, right? So um, what happens is the longer we go through the 2,000 years since the New Testament was written, the older the text that we find. So 500 years ago, the oldest texts that we had were newer than the texts we have now. Does that make sense? And what's happened is as we've found older and older texts, we've discovered that along the way something's got added to the texts. And the best theory uh, on Matthew's Gospel and the Lord's Prayer is that it quickly became the practice of Christians to actually pray this prayer when they gathered on Sundays. And when you, when you take a prayer on the page, and you bring it forward into the community and wrap it up in flesh and blood and perhaps you put song to it, right? It's, it's often the case that things sort of expand a little bit, right? And like the idea perhaps here is that like the, the followers of Jesus who began to pray this prayer on a regular basis found that by the time they were done tuning to it, by the time they were done joining it, there was a little more to be said. And they just found themselves responding with a kind of affirmation of God and God's kingdom in them and in the world. And there's a, it's almost sort of a responsive thing. We've prayed the prayer we've been taught to pray, and now we want to say a little more. Like, glory to you and honor to you. It's a kind of like rejoicing and celebrating. And I think that's actually a really beautiful development that might have happened in the first few years of the church. And so uh, we'll pray the prayer as written, and we'll add that the way that apparently those early Christians did. And then uh, when that's done, you can be seated again, and then Mariah and the team are going to lead us through uh, another way of reflecting on it. All right? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, so maybe we'd be the ones who listen deeply enough and long enough to hear that God is in the world and with us. May we understand the nature of who God is and what God does, and may we join. May we tune in and harmonize with the song that God is writing and become the kind of people who live the life of God with one another for the good of the world. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. Drive safe. See you next week.